to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Social media is an ever-present in our lives and it's come a long way since the days where the old men in grey suits just thought it was a waste of time. These days, and I know I'm preaching to the converted here, most of us are on social media. The annual State of Digital report compiled by We Are Social and Hootsuite tells us that 56.3% of people use the internet to stay in touch with friends and family and 55.6% use the internet to keep up to date with news and events. According to one source based on total website traffic, social media behemoths YouTube and Facebook are the second and third most visited sites on the internet respectively behind only Google with Twitter in fourth and Instagram in fifth. So just to be clear there, four of the top five most visited websites are social media websites. Further, 90.6% of the global internet users aged between 16 and 64 use it to watch videos. I'd hazard a guess that that number would be pushed even higher if under-16s were included. Internet users aged 16 to 64 spend an average of two hours and 25 minutes on social media each day. There's about 17 countries that rank higher than that average, topping out with the Philippines with a whopping four hours and 15 minutes per day on social media. As sponsorship professionals, it's your job to engage audiences, whether that is as a rights holder providing access to a brand or whether you are a brand trying to use sponsorship to access an otherwise difficult target audience to reach through other channels. All of those people all over the world spending all that time on social media every day Sharing, questioning, arguing, promoting and engaging, it is a truly magnetic place to be. Understanding audiences has always been a key plank in sponsorship and that's why social listening can be a very powerful tool to be able to help you sell or find, align, activate and report on sponsorships regardless of whether you're a rights holder, a brand or an agency. And one industry tool that can help organisations make the most of social listening is TalkWalker. Now TalkWalker delivers the social insights that help brands build growth. It's a powerful software platform to uncover, understand and derive the most valuable insights from social, online and conversational data. And its AI-powered analysis provides real-time insights into what's happening on all social media channels and online media across 187 languages. As such, joining us on the show to discuss how social listening can be used in sponsorship is Ben Foster, TalkWalker, Oceana Enterprise Partner. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to episode 99, brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining me for episode 99. I trust it's all well in your part of the world and that this episode gives you lots of great insights for your role. So... Next up will be episode 100, and I have been planning and building something a little bit different for you. I want to use episode 100 as a bit of a marker to look ahead at what's in store for the sponsorship industry. So I've been chatting to a cross-section of rights holders, brands, and agencies to get their views, and they've all been posed the same six questions. So it'll be amazing to get some different points of views on each topic. Now, I haven't 100% figured out how the shows are going to hang together. I may dedicate one to rights holders, one to brands, one to agencies, or I may pick one or two, three questions to group together into a show by themselves. But stay tuned for that. It's definitely going to be worth your time. For now, though, it's shout-out time. And the first one, super short, super sharp. Adam Jackson, General Manager, Commercial at Benchvote, 
connected with me on LinkedIn and simply said, hi, Daniel, big fan of the podcast. Excellent work. Keep it up. Love it, Adam. Thanks for the kind words. I hope you're well. Next was Mark Fazio on LinkedIn who wrote, just reaching out as I'm a big fan of the Inside Sponsorship podcast. Great stuff. And it has supported me a lot with my partnerships I have brought to Mate, a telco business I started in Australia with my brother, David, back in 2016. And we have leveraged sports sponsorships and ambassadors quite a bit in our brand strategy. It has been a key strategy to our business growth. Mark, thanks for reaching out. It's super cool to hear that the podcast has helped your business and more broadly that sport has played a big role in your success. Great work. Well done. Other than that, you all know I love a shout out. So please connect with me on LinkedIn and say hi, and I'll give you a shout out on the next episode. Imagine getting a shout out in episode 100 of Inside Sponsorship. That could be you. But for now, it's time to welcome Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, who joins us to talk about his latest blog, which you can find at coresoftware.com, titled Tokyo 2020 in 2021, Broadcast and Sponsorship Breakdown. Here's Jordan. Jordan, welcome to the show. On a scale of one to 10, how much are you enjoying and loving having the Olympics on? And just to be clear, zero is I hate the Olympics. Ten is more Olympics, please. Oh, I got to I gotta give myself a, a very solid nine on that. Very good. Have you been watching much? Uh, I've been trying to watch a little bit in the mornings and then a little bit in the evenings with some of the delays. You know, sometimes I'm watching an event that I already know the results of, but it's, you know, it's still good to try to keep up with it on as many platforms as I can. What's been your favorite moment so far? What's got you really excited? I'm a little biased towards it. I've been watching some of the swimming events because there are a lot of University of Florida athletes, and that's my alma mater as well. And, you know, UF had about 30, 32 athletes make it to Tokyo for the Olympics, and a few are starting to get their gold medals, silver medals, and that's been really exciting to watch um, people from my school competing on the Olympic stage. Outstanding. I know it was a proud moment for a lot of people in the town that I live in, Canberra. There's roughly about 450, 460,000 people. There's a a big private boys' school that I went to, my son oh, went wow. to, and we were lucky enough to have Paddy Mills go to that school, and he was our flag bearer for Australia. So it was quite a proud moment watching a guy that went, I mean, I'd never seen him before. I've never seen him in person, never <laughs> met him, never was at school with Paddy. I didn't even play you don't, basketball. You don't bump into him at the coffee shop every now and then? <laughs> no, but it was, it was really cool just to think, wow, that guy went to the same school as I, and look at him now carrying a proud Indigenous Australian doing great great things on the international stage, both for the NBA and for now Australia carrying the flag. It was, it was a really proud moment. So yeah, that's been my favorite, one of my favorite moments. My other favorite moment has been Jess Fox in the, the C1 canoe. So much pressure. I don't know if you know much of this story, but her dad is English. He was an Olympic, uh, sorry, a world champion in canoeing. Her mom's French. She was a world champion in canoeing. And she's like proper, like slalom event royalty, right? So she's been coached by her mum since she was a teenager. But over the last 10 years, she's won just about all there is to win in the sport. So she's won four junior world champion crowns. She's won eight under 23 world titles, a youth Olympics gold medal, 10 senior world championships. So she's a 10 times world champion and she got silver in London and bronze in Rio and 
She got bronze in Tokyo. I think it was on Monday or Tuesday in the K1, which is the canoe where you've got two blades at the end of the paddle. And she was a heavy, heavy favourite to win gold. And so we're just all around the TV and just so disappointed for her and, and just the look on her face. And we knew it shattered her. And her dad is actually commentating on the events. And this guy, he dead said has ice in his veins. He could be talking about anybody, not his daughter. And then yesterday... She backed it up with gold in the C1. So the canoe with just a single blade paddle. And my son and I were absolutely just jumping around the lounge room, screaming at the TV at a sport that I would only ever watch once every four years. But they're the special moments of the Olympics, aren't they? Oh, that's, that, that's what it's all about. It's um, it's finding that connection to an athlete that, you know, you're not necessarily following forever, but when you hear a lot of the backstories that have been coming out and learning more about them, which I feel like with all the, you know, the access that we have and social media definitely being a contribution there, we have so much insight into what goes into the athletes' minds, their training and everything. And you just learn so much more about how they're competing, why they're competing and just everything that they're going through. It's, it's been so cool. And it's such it's such a peak moment, isn't it? You hear, like you said, you hear the backstories. I love, I don't know what the, the, coverage is like in america in the states there but here in australia they quite often get people together and they they go and put a television crew in the lounge room a little bit like you would see with drafts in the nfl and the nba and and things like that where they cut to the family and, and see somebody getting picked and they cut to these families as their son or daughter is winning a gold medal and i'm i could tell you what i'm glad the olympics only happen every five years or sorry every four years because I can't do this much crying. I get so emotional <laughs> for these people and I have no idea why. But as you said, I just think I feel that whole rush of emotion of all that sacrifice that they've put into it and, and all the effort that goes in from their whole support crew and their family, all the sacrifice. And there can only be one winner, unfortunately. And I think that's what makes it so emotional. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you got to get ready for Winter Olympics coming up uh, a lot sooner than we're normally expecting. And then a FIFA World Cup. And then another summer game. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. I've got a question for you. If you were forced to compete at the Olympics, but you could choose any event, what are you going for? Forced to compete? I'd be honored to compete. <laughs> so put, put me out there. I'll figure out the sport. Okay. The Summer Olympics? I hadn't thought this one through, to be honest. So you can pick summer or winter. Winter, I, I feel like I would want to give curling a shot. I'm in a, as funny as it sounds, I'm in a cornhole league here also. And I feel like that's just the winter version of it. It's a little, you know, a little bit of just an ice-based uh, shuffleboard. So for winter, def I think it would be curling. For the summer games, I would like to think that I would be good at handball, mostly because I played baseball growing up. I was a pitcher and an outfielder. So I have that, you know, that natural throw at least. And I feel like that could be a pretty good advantage. That's, you know, half the game is I feel like is throwing the ball into the net if I still if I still had my accuracy back from my playing days and my arm strength from them, you know, I, I would have to train a little bit, but I would say handball. So look, on a serious note, let's let's jump into why we have you on the show. So we've done the Jordan and Daniel Olympics review so far. We might visit again <laughs> in the next podcast when uh, the Olympics are finished and we do a little bit of a review. But you've spent some time prior to the Olympics having a look at what's going on. And, and I must say, it is pretty cool having the Olympics on. After all, we've been through as a society over the last 
18 months or so. And, and I've heard many athletes, we spoke about it earlier, referencing the build-up and the challenges that they've had to overcome and how difficult training in isolation and not having regular competition has been for them, the athletes. But it's not just the athletes who face challenges when the Olympics come around, is it? No, there's a whole team behind the team and a whole community that both work together to put on the Olympic Games. And the Olympics actually have a you know place in my heart because my intro into the sports industry as a career was with USA Wrestling at the Olympic Committee. That was my first ever internship, and it was really impactful to see how much goes into putting on a lot of these international events. When it comes to the community part of it as well, it's a big risk for cities and countries to host the games because, uh, you know, historically on average, they're not necessarily money makers, but there are some make good feels to it. It's uh, a way to showcase your city and to hopefully boost tourism. Maybe you need to increase some infrastructure also, and we want the games to help with that. But Tokyo is facing just such a unique circumstance. These games were scheduled out so far in advance that it's almost impossible to say that if something comes up for this Olympics, that we can make it up for the next one, because that one is likely already scheduled too. You know, Tokyo, these games are costing upwards of 20 to $26 billion, the majority of which was publicly funded. So there was a lot that went into it, including the signs, the name of the game staying at Tokyo 2020 instead of 2021. There were just so many details that were already committed to that the options were unfortunately almost host the games without fans as we are or just not playing the games this year and missing another uh, just the cycle of it so i'm happy to see that the games are going on but there are also just so many concerns about the safety of it and everything and we're going to like see how far in advance these are scheduled and how much work the teams like behind the scenes the the workers the cities and all the olympic committees around the world are going into it they announce these games 10, 11 years in advance sometimes. When Los Angeles 2028 was announced, that was in 2017. So they're, they've been planning already for four years, getting ready for games that's not for another two cycles. And then Brisbane just got announced this month for 2032, and that's still over 10 years in advance. So there's just so much that goes in so far into the future that they just, they almost have to, keep the games or they would get rid of it. It's hard to spin up a second host. Well, when the Tokyo 2020 organizing committees for the Olympic games, they had to announce that there were going to be no fans present in the arenas. And we've all seen the vision of it. It's, it's quite a little bit eerie, but we're kind of getting used to it, aren't we? After all of this time, but you there at core asked three big questions. How much ticket revenue is being lost by having no fans? Running into that is what will the broadcast look like and how will sponsors react and adapt is the third question. So there's some great questions and definitely for those of us in the sports and related industry, they're the ones that pop into our mind as we sit on the couch or jump around the lounge room and watch the games. We've got one part of our brain thinking about the impacts of no fans. So let's unpack them. Let's look at lost revenue first. How is that shaping up? No, it's, uh, it's not looking great. Um, the, in 2019, the Olympic Organizing Committee of Tokyo were expecting that they would sell from anywhere from seven to nine million tickets for across all of the events, and this would total 
uh, about 800 million, potentially up to a billion, depending on how much they were able to get for these tickets. And these prices were really ranging from about looking at U.S. dollars, about $2,700 for some of the, the prime tickets of the opening ceremonies. But then they also had a lot of tickets that were significantly less, around $20, to balance out some of the events and try to get as many people into supporting the games as possible. So missing out on an entire stream of revenue is a multiplier into others. So if, when you have fans on site at any event, they'll also be contributing to concessions, the team stores for merchandise. There are just so many other streams of revenue that get affected from not having just ticket sales too. So obviously that one's going to be a big one, but you can't totally predict about how much merchandise is being lost out on too. We actually are fortunate enough at Core, we have a colleague, Tak Matsumoto, in our customer success department. He was planning on going to the Olympics a few years ago, and he was doing some research into how much these tickets were being priced and looking at some of the more popular events, according to World Atlas, swimming, track and field, basketball, soccer. These are all uh, football, also for our international fans, of course. These are some of the primary events that people want to go see. And these tickets were going for, at a minimum, about $350 and not even for necessarily the top tier caliber of the event. It might not even be the medal round uh, or the fan favorite going into it. But these are still just very expensive tickets for some of those highly coveted events. A loss of $800 million in tickets or thereabouts is a number that makes me think, ouch, that really does hurt. <laughs> it's clearly not great. And we all know it's was going to be bad but the talking about numbers that like that really does bring it into sharp focus for us what about what broadcast will look like is there an opportunity really to make up sort of ground lost in this space on the ticket sales because people are at home watching on on tv more i think there's a lot of ground to make on ensuring that the fans from home are having a good watching experience on the dollar side a lot of these sponsorship deals were probably already tied up before the games even happened just for how far in advance NBC, at least in the U.S., was paying for the rights of the Olympics. Um, they started buying Olympic rights in 2011 for four Olympics in a row, and then they doubled down on that. And in 2014, they wanted to include another six Olympic Games for that. So they have they have these deals already set up. It's now just filling in the sponsorship space, but they are trying to get creative in how they're going to be broadcasting and how they're going to monetize the broadcast as well. NBC was planning on airing about 7,000 hours of Olympic content across their main broadcasting channels. So these were essentially a huge commitment by putting all their resources into making sure that they can air as much of the games as possible. And even though TV viewership just in general has been on the decline for the past few years due to streaming and other distractions out there, Live sports are still some of the more desirable events for these brands that are trying to get their their logos and their slogans in front of a passionate customer base. So they'll still be reaching out to help with the broadcast, but it's just going to be interesting to see how creative these networks can really get. Well, there's a fair bit of doom and gloom with the loss of income on ticket sales, but in terms of volume, the broadcasting content is is off the chart. The numbers, as you said, 
have been declining for a while, but the content is definitely there. Add into that that many around the world, they're still spending a fair bit of time at home still with restrictions in place, and, and hopefully the Olympics are coming in and they're going to be a welcome distraction for people. It feels like sponsorship, as you said, with the creative aspects, it, it kind of might be well-placed here to sort of take advantage of people actually connecting and engaging and watching more Olympics. Or is it a bit more of an evening out with assets lost from having no spectators in the stands and at, and at the events with those assets that are kind of created because there's more of a focus on broadcast? Is there going to be more opportunity, you think, or is it more just sort of, well, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, so to speak? And I, I think there's more opportunity. These networks are really getting their names out there. When you're watching some of the Olympics, some of the commercials that might come up might be for a different NBC program. So they're they're using their own platform to help promote some of their others too. But then they're also getting creative with how we can interact with the games during our watching experience. Comcast announced that they were going to have commercials. They were going to interrupt their own commercials with real-time live highlights of the game. So if an event was happening and then a commercial aired an hour later, two hours later, that event might show up in the commercial also. So they're trying to really just push as much of the content out there to help make up for the fact that we can't have the people in the stands. So normally, if a game is going to be on NBC and you're in attendance, obviously you're not watching the broadcast, but there's a chance that you see some NBC branding around the stadium. And we're missing out on that, of course, by not being there. So there are just other new ways that we've seen some of these broadcast deals being put together. Do you think that this is almost like a launching platform for future games where you talk about creativity and different opportunities to help spectators that are at home, not in the stadiums, engage. Do you think we will build on that for the next games in Paris and the the Winter Olympic Games that are coming up in China? Or do you think that broadcasters and, and sponsors will just regress to what it was always like? TV is never going anywhere, at least not for the next couple Olympic Games, but I think you're right with this being a launching pad. I'm thinking back to the Masters last fall, the one that was pushed back a few months, not the one that just happened this past April. But that Masters watching experience was so unique to me, at least when I was watching on the app, because it was it felt like the first time that I could really interact with and choose which players I want to follow, which holes I want to watch. And that was just one singular event over a couple of days. I absolutely think that they're just. this is going to spur some new innovation on how we consume the Olympic Games going forward. That's good. That's exactly what I wanted to hear because I think we need to keep pushing forward. And while the pandemic absolutely has sucked, it has prodded a lot of the industry to sort of sit up and go, well, how are we going to do things differently? So there's lots of opportunity there and, and heaps of creative and bright minds in the industry that can push us forward. Jordan, How do we tie all of what we've spoken together in what is absolutely a history-making games here in 2021? A lot of it is to sit back and enjoy the games. Um, These athletes have sacrificed so much, adding an extra year of training also. It can be brutal to the body, to the mind, and there's so much that we need to learn to respect what the athletes are going through what the team behind the team is going through also, and what these host cities are essentially sacrificing to help put on such a historic games. 
overall, we of course wish luck, health, and everything to all of these athletes around the world. Of course, we're going to have our own national bias for me, even a lower level at my own school's bias, but controversy aside, you know, we're, we're grateful for all the individuals that are able to put this together and to help make the best of this situation. So everybody to everybody behind the games on the national Olympic committee level, and also just around the world in Tokyo, thank you for everything that you've done so far. And we will continue to enjoy these games as they're progressing. Couldn't have put it better myself, Jordan. Well done. Great chat and still lots of the Olympics to go still. I don't want to actually look at the calendar because I kind of get depressed once it <laughs> once we get past the halfway point. I think there's less Olympics to go than what I've just consumed. So I haven't looked at how much we've actually got left to go, but there's still lots to happen. The track and field has just kicked off today. So it's going to be great to have some of this chat in mind as we watch the rest of the Olympics and, as you said, the incredible athletes doing their thing in Tokyo and good luck to everybody else that is still to compete at the games thanks for joining us and i look forward to you joining me in the next episode thanks for having me again and looking forward to the next one as well social media all of those people all over the world spending all that time on social media every single day sharing questioning promoting arguing and engaging it is a truly magnetic place to be now understanding audiences has always been a key plank in sponsorship that's why social listening can be a very powerful tool to be able to help sell find align activate and report on sponsorships regardless of whether you're a rights holder brand or agency one industry tool that can help organizations make the most of social listening is TalkWalker. TalkWalker is a powerful software platform to uncover, understand, and derive the most valuable insights from social, online, and conversational data. Its AI-powered analysis provides real-time insights into what's happening on all social media channels and online media across 187 languages. As such, joining us on the show to discuss how social listening can be used in sponsorship is Ben Foster, TalkWalker Oceana Enterprise Partner. Here's Ben. Ben, welcome to the show. We always start with a few icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better and for us to sort of just ease into the chat, so to speak. Now, my research tells me that you spent time in France as a sax player. So I Googled in my research best saxophone songs and, mate, there are some absolute crackers in there. I've got Beastie Boys, Brass Monkey, George Michael, Careless Whisper, Men at Work, Who Can It Be Now? And, of course, Smooth Operator and, you know, even Katy Perry last Friday night. So I'm curious about what, in your opinion, is the best ever song with a saxophone in it and what's your favorite song to play on the sax as well good research <laughs> yeah i spent a bit of time in france in the alps actually playing uh playing sax with djs and, and whatnot so it would be a lot of fun uh, for, for, for the best sax tune look i do love Taylor whispers up there for a lot of fun george mike a bit of a classic love the men at work who can it be now and uh yeah the smooth operator the say track is great so those three probably my favorite your next icebreaker question, because we're chatting about social media on this episode, that's why we've got you here, is in the morning, what's the first social media app that you open on your phone and why is it that app? And also, does that happen while you're still in bed or are you a little bit more disciplined than that? 
Uh, look, uh, during lockdown, <laughs> I think um, like the rest of the population and just checking the um, the WhatsApp and also the Facebook messages and apps, go and uh, check in with some mates overseas or the family. It's usually how we're um, we're going through and just communicating these days with a quick, uh, quick catch up. And uh, unfortunately, I think it is in bed too. <laughs> Sorry about that. But uh, no, it's, uh, it's uh, yeah, those, those two that I tend to get on. And then, um, yeah, Facebook for my news actually is the other one when uh, I thought about this. You know, going through the, the online sites. Yeah, get an update and just catching up on today's news. Very good. Sounds very normal, to be honest, Ben. So, look, let's start by setting the scene a little bit. From a global perspective, what does social media look like at the moment? What is the state of social media generally? Social media has exploded <laughs> and has really become something that's, that's massive and, and should be part of all organisations. Marketing activities and, and monitoring those as well. But... Today, just to, to give you some stats, uh, essentially as well, you know, social media around the world has has a user activity uh, which is about 4.48 billion, which is crazy. Social media users, as a global percentage, is 56.8 percent. There's annual change in the number of uh, global social media users, which is up from uh, from last year, 13.1 uh, percent. And then the percentage of social media users accessing via mobile their, their phones is 99 percent. So really average amount of time per day spent using social media is two hours and 24 minutes. It's crazy. In Australia, there was 20.5 million social media users in 2021. The number of social media users in Australia did remain unchanged, however, between 2020 and 2021. The number of social media users in Australia was equivalent to 79.9% of the total population. You know, getting on to to better understand more across the, the key players in the space, of course, you've, you, you, the ones that we see clients really want to monitor um, very heavily on is, is, is Facebook, Instagram as well, being able to focus more across that. And of course, Twitter, although not so much used probably as, as much as uh, the former, but still important to, to, to stay across. And a lot of players do go through and utilize it. We are seeing in the younger generation as well, the video activity and another player that's coming on, which is which organizations are wanting to, to, to be across, is, is TikTok. That currently has 68.9 uh, million users around the world, with 49% of those female and 51% of those those male as well. So that's uh, a new, um, an interesting sort of demographic which organisations are, are wanting to, to go through and, and focus upon. I suppose also what's worthwhile to, to consider, social media is utilised uh, a lot by the Western world, but we are seeing organisations wanting to, to stay more across um, the Asia market, particularly uh, China with expansion taking place out there. WeChat is a form of social media that uh, organisations want to, to better understand. Just to give you some, some numbers and facts across that, WeChat has 1.21 billion users with 45% of those female and 50, uh, 54.6% of those male as well. There's a quarter-on-quarter increase in global monthly active users of WeChat which was up 0.6 or 7 million users for quarter on quarter. So it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely something that a lot of organisations are wanting to, to stay across. Video has been a huge focus over the past few years and Instagram recently announced that they are going to be focusing on video more as opposed to being an image sharing platform. What trends are you seeing on social media at the moment in terms of where audiences are gravitating or maybe changing behaviour as well and what the focus is for content and engagement, especially on the brand front? 
Video has really taken off over the last couple of years. You're, you're getting your main players, so Instagram, Facebook, obviously, YouTube, then uh, even WeChat in more of the uh, Asia market as well, is really um, trying to get smaller bite-sized videos to be sent. You know, YouTube started doing the shorts capability, which is about 20 to 30-second videos, and uh, Instagram's had the um, the Reels and IGTV, which is a bit of a longer version as well. But, uh, yeah, they're just trying to get more video capabilities out to, to their audiences and to, and to their users and giving people that capability to go through and, and consume that as well. So um, in terms of being able to, to see that sort of shift from a brand point of view, you know, there's technology that the TalkWalker and many other social listening platforms have in being able to go through and actually track their logos as well, image and logo tracking capabilities as well. So being able to, to sort of see that and track where maybe brands are, are being highlighted or even brands are being seen out in sporting arenas, et cetera. Yeah, there's that ability to go through and, and track those those image capabilities too. And of course, with, with video, it's very important for brands and uh, organisations to, to track that. Obviously, as you described, there are lots and lots of people on social media, 4.8 billion users, as the name suggests, it is social. And so people are on there having conversations and sharing and expressing views and themselves and, and their lives and all that sort of stuff. The things that go into making them social beings. What are the benefits to brands and rights holders listening into those conversations, so to speak? Why would they do it? What are they looking for? What's probably key for brands to, to monitor are a number of things. At TalkWalker, we have a, a, a bit of a framework that we have help uh, organisations go to to prioritise a listening platform, and that's sort of in the, the protect, measure, and promote side as well. So your protection side is much more across being able to see if there's any issues arising and sentiment, whether that be positive or negative, and that's probably really important for uh, brands to be across. Uh, a lot of our clients do go through and, and utilise that to make sure that there is uh, positive brand sentiment. And if there's negative, why is that? So they can go on a bit of a crisis communications approach if something bad comes out. The measurement side is being able to go through, look at the, more of your, your standard foundation, vanity sort of metrics, brand health, you know, social media, reach, engagement, those, those KPIs. And then the promote side is being able to go through and actually identify where the brand is being seen as well. And also, you know, the sort of the demographics that, that make up the, uh, the audience that you're after is uh, you're, you're looking to, to target. So there's some of the key things that the brand should be going through and, and focusing on um, just so they have a, a much deeper understanding of not so much their owned media, that's their self-promoted stuff, but their earned media, that, that larger conversation that can be, you know, sometimes 80 to, to 90, 90% of the conversation too. So being able to really properly understand who you're, audiences, what they do, and also their potentially even their, their buying behaviours is, is a pretty important thing to, to organisations to, to monitor. I love how you break it down there at TalkWalker with having those three different focuses, the protect, the measure, and the promote, because I think from the outside, if you don't have a lot of experience in listening into social media, it, it's literally just like, what can we find out about people so that we can sell them our products, where clearly it's not just about that. So let's say a brand or a rights holder is thinking about setting up some social listening. Where do they start and what do they need to be keeping in mind to ensure that they're successful? You know, a lot of organisations, well, many major corporations, major sponsors, I would think definitely have that ability uh, and are tracking, uh, going through and, and um, staying across social media. But if, you, if you're looking from a foundational point of view, you, of course, want to have your, your social channels up. So uh, what we tend to see a lot of is, is obviously the Facebook activity, uh, Instagram activity, Twitter activity too. So being, being across those, 
And then approach it more from not so much social monitoring, but, but really listening. And there's a bit of a differentiation between those. I mean, monitoring is quite reactive. Coming back to that protection side that I highlighted earlier, listening should be a bit more proactive. So what is it? And this will come through in you know the comments that people are leaving on official company handles or, or channels. So do make sure that you, you are across these, but you are going that step further and actually really listening and monitoring that conversation. Other areas that we can go through, like what's very standard is to go through and obviously put in the back-end Boolean searches, you know, to go through and actually obviously monitor the, the name. And also very common is competitive insights too. So what is it that you'll want to see from your competitors or maybe some of the um, key opinion leaders or, or influencers? There's some people, uh, commentators that may even want to, to stay across, not so much broadcasting commentators, but, you know, newspaper writers, et cetera. There's some other things that you can go through and, and stay across. So, yeah, that, that's a pretty foundational approach, being able to, to go through and look at, you know, competitor insights and, and your social channels and then go to a deeper level and actually go through and start to monitor your your partner's activities too. In the sporting arena, what we do see a lot of it as well is, is campaign monitoring. So they want to go through and actually maybe there's a hashtag that they're trying to promote or a new brand or a new player that they're trying to, to go through. So being able to, to see the promotion of that handle that, that, uh, or that Instagram hashtag and also being to see the, um, the sentiment towards that as well. Well, with somebody, an organisation who might just be starting out and thinking about putting in place some social listening and this might be a little bit of a tough question to answer because i appreciate it's always a it depends but what about resourcing when when somebody first starts at that basic level that you spoke about is it something that an existing person an existing staff member in an organization can maybe absorb or, or take on top of their other activities and listeners i realize that you're all crazy busy or ben is it something that requires more than that it's actually going to require some more staffing we work with all sorts of people across different maturity levels, I suppose, uh, as always uh, putting it. And resourcing is a key one. Where we see the most success is that they have a, a dedicated um, internal digital champion that we can work with and go through and, and actually help prioritise where they want to listen on the platform and to what audience, what products, et cetera, that they, they want to monitor. So if you've got somebody – and usually – Organisations in the sporting uh, field do have a, a social media advocate or somebody actually pr- actively promoting, whether it be the players or their um, their, their new uh, sponsorship uh, products or even games and results. So where we see best is to sort of have that internal champion and, you know, a team of maybe one to two people that we work with. But, of course, then your, your C-suite, uh, your chief marketing officers or your operation officers as well can have that information put through to them, which is important, and get that reporting. So they can go through and, and um, have that reported. We do, of course, work with other organisations that outsource it, put it out to schedule agencies or creative agencies that, uh, that look after their uh, their brand and work with that. So um, we work successfully with them as, as well, of course. But to your point earlier, is it better to, to have if somebody who's starting out? I think you'd want to have at least one or two team members in that social space that, uh, that they could dedicate quite a bit of time to not just working with the platform but also uh, sending out the reports to the wider team. Definitely. I think that that comment around some sort of digital champion or listening champion is definitely very relevant. Now, you mentioned reporting just then in that answer, and you also spoke earlier about the protect, the measure, and the promote, and you alluded to, in a couple of different answers, things like measuring sentiment and hashtag monitoring. But what can brands and rights holders 
listen to? Like I'm looking for something specific once they are set up, i.e. what will they find out and what data and reports can they expect to pull from that listening? And what is the outcome in terms of the information that, for want of a better phrase, they have in their hands from this process? Great point. It's, it's, it's very important to go through and you know, collect this data, but uh, what do you actually do with it once you've got it, right? So a lot of organisations that, that we do work with go through and set up, whether it be campaign activity or just you know the, the share of voice activity as well, and then send that out to uh, whether it be on a weekly, sometimes daily, bi-weekly, that report just to, to, to really stay atop across the, the conversation that's taking place. So I think another one which is really quite relevant for organisations in the sporting space that are working with, with sponsors is they may want to measure their share of voice or their, their actual products at the start of a competition or at the start of an event and measure that throughout the, the competition's duration or the tournament's duration or the, the match's duration to really see what that share of voice or what, whatever they are looking to, to monitor, whether it be from a product point of view or a player point of view. Yeah, do stay across how, how far or compare that the start of that tournament and the end of the tournament just to, to be across that um, that activity. So that's quite an important thing that a lot of clients do take on to, to monitor, not just uh, across the, their products, but also their, their competitors as well. Okay, so let's say an organisation has set up some social listening. Apart from the resourcing comments that you made earlier, what are some common mistakes or maybe missteps that you see people making in this process? Adoption can, can be one, but a lot of the clients may not unfortunately go through and fully adopt the platform as well. And they can go through and just monitor. I, I touched on this point earlier before, um, monitor the listening as well. So social monitoring, go through and just look at the pretty standard metrics, Dan mentioned, likes, comments, hashtags, etc. Listening on a deeper level is going across and, and taking the sentiment analysis, really understanding their audiences and putting the, the data much more into, into context so they can better understand the, their audience as well and adopting to that as well. They also may, what's a really common one, is that different parts of the organisation may work in different data silos. This is a very, very common thing that I'm sure many of your clients can, can work with and may not be familiar that one, one you know, the, the uh, marketing department may have a tool, social listening tool, like TalkWalker, but they may not put it over to their customer service team or other areas who are dealing with customers as well. So there's the ability to actually input a social listening tool across to also review online reviews, put it into your customer support, even put into have customer surveys feed into that as well. So you're getting a much holistic view of how fans are how people are actually engaging with the brand. So social listening is just not one tool, but again you can you can further extend that out into um, online review capabilities, customer support and that customer surveys. So being able to go go to that level or we'll go across the, the data silos internally is, is very useful. And to that point as well, people may not be taking feedback from those that deal with the fans directly. So, so your employees <laughs> being able to get their sort of feedback on what the employees and how they're actually working with the fans, et cetera. So being able to do that. And another one, which is this a bit more personal, I think, is um, sometimes organisations may post too often and it can be a little bit irrelevant. From my point of view, sometimes I, I've, I've left groups or sometimes not so much teams. I'm a very devoted Liverpool fan. Uh, won't be, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll never uh, unfollow them. But um, you know, I have seen other organisations that, that just put up silly posts. And uh, it's, I think it's more of a less is more approach to get a really good 
really good uh, post, which can drive, you know, a lot of, uh, even morality sometimes as well, which is what a lot of organisations uh, and, you know, marketing teams are, are sort, sort of after. So I think, um, yeah, sometimes don't post every second, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you can have uh, something which is just a little bit more impactful and, and will resonate more with, um, with your audience. It's always a balancing act, the content and the posting and the engagement. Now, Ben, there's clearly some amazing data available from having social listening in place. And I love those comments and I wanted to pick them up a little bit because you mentioned that different business areas not sharing data can be an issue. So those data silos. So what are your views on how data from social listening can marry up or be used with data from other parts of an organization, particularly in the sponsorship space? I think that you, um, your organizations may touch on own data, you know, consumer insights data. What's a key thing to go through and help organizations with? And we're sort of, we're shifting towards this as well as being able to, with the you know, offering, we, we call it Customer Data Plus, and it's been able to integrate all those other forms of data into a social platform or social monitoring platform. And it, it goes from being sort of social monitoring or social listening further to, to insights listening to um, consumer intelligence. So being able to, to really understand, get help organisations get more touch points or more predictive measurements of what their, what their consumers are doing or what their clients are doing or their fans are doing. So... We can go through and, and help them. I mean, a classic one that we do see a lot of is being able to marry the demographics of what you get through from the social media apps and being able to go through and help organisations better understand not just age ranges but also go through and um, their interests, occupations, gender breakdown, obviously. So being able to go through and use that as another a touch point, it, definitely in the sporting and sponsorship space is something that a lot of organisations do truly highly value and helps you know give them a better better understanding of what their, their client base looks like. And also just we have geolocation capabilities too. So you can go through and, and better track the size of different countries, different states in particular countries. We do that quite a bit. Um, we're, some organisations are just want to focus maybe on Victoria or, or New South Wales. Yeah, they've been able to go through and get that. So there's, there's insights which, um, which are publicly available because the way that organisations go through and get this is when you go through and set up your, your profile on, on Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram, you'll go through and actually put your, you know, you can put your age, what university I think you went to um, when I first kicked mine off and I was at uh, Sydney. But anyway, that, that is available, uh, publicly available information. It's a platform, the, uh, a listening platform's capability to go through and actually break that down and then give a uh, much more overview, uh, sorry, holistic overview of what the collective um, demographic looks like, uh, looks like. So, yeah, I think being able to go through and, and really marry, marry those demographics up is, is really quite important. And then also, you know, campaign monitoring as well, which is, is really quite uh, important for organisations to see, you know, the, the trending of particular matches or games or hashtags of, of players, et cetera. That's always really quite helpful to, to, to see how well they're being received. Clearly, the next question, the extension of that answer is your thoughts on how rights holders can use that data to better actually sell and align and activate sponsorships because it's okay to have all of this data, but we actually need to do something with it in our jobs. How does it give them an advantage on that front, do you think, compared to somebody who isn't social listening? Well, that's always a tricky thing, right? Being able to go through and present this back to not just sponsors, but to internally as well. <laughs> we we have to go through and help organisations better uh, present what they what they find. I think what I mentioned previously in regards to the, the brand's share of voice, 
is really quite important. So you can go back to to your your sponsors. Take for example, I don't know. Um, I noticed that um, the, the Wallabies have just partnered up recently with Cadbury. I've been able to, to present back to the Wallabies, you know, the, the new partnership engagement that they've had with uh, Cadbury and look at that, that actual share of voice and the, the activity that uh, that it's drawing. It would be really, really valuable to present back to, to Cadbury to show them the new market that they've been uh, opened up to. Another one which is, is quite important, I think, is being able to present back, you know, the owned and, and earned media. So owned is self-promoted, earned is, is the conversation and everything else. Um, I touched on this earlier. A lot of organisations do find that really, really helpful. Another key one too, which we do help organisations do quite a bit and they find it really useful, is, is being able to show the language used with intent to buy. So what sort of words are being used around a product? An example maybe a can of Coke, a bottle of Coke or something like that. So being able to, to show the organisation the language it's used, so past language, immediate language and then future language, such as, you know, oh, I've just purchased a, a Coke uh, a Coke can at the match or I'm looking forward to, to getting a, a Coke at the footy soon today or something like that. So we, we can go through and, and, and um, actually show that uh, language sharing, which is very useful too. So being able to, to monitor the intention to buy. And another, you know, something that, that we, uh, the talk works with clients a lot is also the image and logo recognition. I've been able to, to go through and train the platform to go through and monitor their maybe it's a sponsor on the shirt or even um, you know where that sponsorship is being picked up. We can go through and train these to, to look at golf tournaments, for example, or, or um, winners, podiums, et cetera, with the, the image rights or logo rights. We can go through and train the platform to, to not only just pick up the, the logo itself, but also give um, more measurements behind uh, you know potential audience or yeah, demographic uh, pickup uh, or demographics uh, that are taking that into. So that's, that's, that's really quite helpful for organisations to go through and, and not just see that where their logo has been uh, shown, but to what sort of audience and also monitor the conversation across that. Great chat so far, Ben. With a great background and setup, let's move into some examples that the listeners can really sort of wrap their heads around a little bit. Social listening, it gives you an amazing opportunity to capitalise on the trends and the sentiment that are happening in real time. And often that needs to be immediate, needs to be in the moment, right? Can you share any examples of great listening and execution on that front? We put a report out a couple of years ago, which I find really quite helpful in this space and being a big football fan myself, was the 2018 Russia World Cup. Fans noticed uh, new names around the stadium. Sony and Emirates uh, ended their partnerships in 2014. And I think uh, Continental, Castrol and Johnson & Johnson followed suit in, in 2015. But China really appreciated the value of the, the World Cup and what they could bring. So Chinese example, uh, Chinese companies like Vivo, um, uh, but Hisense, and Mengui stepped up for the opportunity to share their products with, with the global audience. So that's, you know, from the global uh, audience point of view, that, that was massive. The audience was a little bit different too. Uh, since 2014, more than 700,000 people gained online access. So, And now with an extra billion, we're, we're using smartphones since the 2014 World Cup. So have you can see the World Cup and, and ultimately engaged with it, changed quite a bit too. So allowing those sponsorship activities, uh, sponsors, that we mentioned, like Bevo, uh, being able to capitalise on that exposure, but also uh, expose their brands and, and listen to listen to the, the reactions towards that as well, this was very, very helpful. Also, kit sponsors. You know, one of the biggest mentions, mentioned drivers to the kit sponsors was the, the user-generated content. During the tournament, there was the kit sponsors totaled 350,000, yeah, roughly 350,556 mentions between 
Kingdom. Of that user-generated content was a, was a huge mention generator. Once the tournament did start, fans around the world shared selfies with their, their favourite kit team, and that meant thousands of images containing the sponsors' logos. So they were more subliminal messages with um, 92% of brands detected, uh, not containing any mention in any respective brand. So even though the fans weren't specifically talking about the kit sponsors, it was still their, their logos being shared. So that's a good example, I think, of how organisations can really um, yeah, capitalise on it and monitor the, the success and also take the fan feedback too. You know, I, I, um, I love seeing the, uh, with the Premier League about to, to kick off this year uh, very soon. It's always quite interesting to go through and, and look at the, uh, what the fans' reactions to the, the home, away, and, and third kit as well, and then uh, look at the rankings as well. So I think Liverpool's got a good one this year. I'm quite happy with the away one, uh, looking forward to it. But, uh, yeah, it's always great to, to see the reactions and, uh, and even allow fans to go through and potentially vote for their favourite kids before they come out. That's something that um, I think a lot of organisers say, oh, I'd like to see more of and um, help us get the, the best kit out there. Well, I can tell you that Liverpool's second kit is uh, being stocked in Rebel Sport at the moment. Saw it the other day. So get down to your local Rebel Sport if you're a dirty Liverpool supporter. Anyway, Ben, <laughs> what about the opposite? Because there is a danger that brands and rights holders insert themselves into the moment in tournaments in those big scenarios, the trends, and it isn't well received. It doesn't work out. It's actually not what they're looking for, and there is some negative publicity and engagement there. Do you have any examples where it hasn't worked out? The one that really sticks out to my mind is the failed um, European Super League last year, which was, you know, catastrophic, not just for the the clubs themselves, but also the sponsors that that, uh, were partnered with them. So, for those of you who, who may not be familiar, the listeners out there, that um, there was a breakaway tournament that was going to be set up from uh, in in Europe, which was going to have the high, uh, the, the ten highest, or twelve highest clubs from Europe, and have a breakaway uh, league from the the Champions League. This was really poorly received, and fans online activity it was huge. We we got many many reports. In the British teams, uh, Chelsea was the first club to to, to break away, and it did highlight that. It, there was a huge disconnect between fans and the board. Not so much between the players. The players were really caught between this, but the way that the board went about it. So that essentially soccer clubs in Europe were really looking for ways to real be, uh, rebuild trust among fans in, in the aftermath of the, the ESL saga. And at its peak, it generated more than 4 million online mentions and 25% negative sentiment. One of the first clubs to make a major announcement was, was Chelsea, and it got involved with getting the, the voice of supporters uh, into the boardroom which is quite clever. So now they've got a dedicated fan at the table with the board, the fan representation. Starting from the 1st of July, 2021, three elected supporters, advisors, uh, will represent the fan community at the club's board meetings. They will not be handed any voting rights, but their voice will be there uh, to ensure general fan sentiment is considered in all future decision-making processes. So new advisors will be elected every season and criteria for inclusivity and diversity will also be met. So I think that's a great example of not listening to, to fans. And even though it wasn't so much, it wasn't driven by a poor marketing campaign or poor um, you know, sponsorship activity, it was really an arrogance from the board to break away. But now they've, they've hopefully learnt their lesson and won't do, uh, do any of these major announcements without true fan, um, fan engagement or representation. 
When we talk rights holders, we often have organisations in mind. However, individuals can also be rights holders. The athletes or the personalities in their own right, maybe a tennis player comes to mind. Is there anything different for individuals versus organisations on the social listing front or are all the same sort of lessons and advice still there? People turn up to watch the players play, essentially. <laughs> you have your favourite players, you, you, they're the ones representing the, the club. So they, they are individuals and they only have, you know, so long with, with the club that some can obviously be with the club for, for a very long time. So I think the rules are essentially still the same, but between what organisations and players may post could be quite different. Players tend to do obviously much more personal things, photos of themselves, their training at the gym with their friends. So it is, it is you know, obviously um, quite different in what they can go through and it's more human, um, obviously. But I think that the rules would be quite quite similar. So it's still obviously going through and trying to put that protect, measure and promote framework in there. But, but what sort of content are they going to be putting out there? We obviously want to have some guidelines and I think you know, poorly done, it, it can cost careers or really cause a, a massive backlash. We've, with the rise of social media, we've, we've seen the, the ability to better understand and know your your your, um, your favourite players or, or teams. But there's also been, you know, those, those horrible and unfortunate instances where people have posted, you know, regrettable or un, unflattering posts or thoughts. There's an example I'll come to shortly across. But, uh, yeah, I think... Being able to to still have that proper understanding of what is, uh, and having that maybe in, in some form of documentation, so we, we don't see that uh, we don't see poor um, poor posts that will compromise the player, but also of course compromise the the brand or the organisation and the sponsorships. Sport is not immune to its fair share of controversy, and you gave a great example with the Super League earlier, and because of how popular. It is. Some stories can break and spread very, very quickly. Negative stories definitely spread quickly. That can be hugely damaging to rights holders and the the brands that actually sponsor them by association. How can social listening help on that front, either in terms of being able to react or maybe have systems and processes in place for when it happens? Essentially, what we're coming down to is, is the governance issue of letting players know what what is acceptable and what is what isn't acceptable. A, a classic example is the, the Israel Folau story. And to Rugby Australia's credit, they've totally tried to make it much more inclusive from different race, gender, um, orientation. There's no issue. And that should make it much more inclusive, which is, is fantastic. But with Folau's post or tweet telling that I think... Sorry to any listeners if this causes offence, but um, you know, gays gays will go to hell, and it was a horrible post. And he didn't, and this was within line with his um, uh, religious beliefs. So uh, I love Flower on the on the pitch; it's fantastic, devastating league union. Not so much an AFL player, I think, but uh, really hit union and uh, league. It was fantastic, but the impact that that sort of had towards the, the people he marginalised it would be horrible. So. Yeah, coming back to the governance issue, it has to be done or at least put into contract, which I think Rugby Australia has, has gone through and, and absolutely uh, reviewed. But how they can go through and better make that clear to, to players. And if, if that is breached, then ramifications will, will occur. And as we've seen with Duff Lau, it has taken place. He's, uh, he's up in, I think he's playing tier three Queensland Rugby League at the moment, which is... Uh, but having a, having a, a media pre, a relief a media brief with um, or release rather with uh, Clive Palmer that um, 
yeah, being able to go through and, and monitor the what players are putting out. Because unfortunately, once a post is, is out, it's very hard to get rid of. You can delete it, but it can be shared virally and uh, will go around very, very quickly. So I think uh, from a, a government's point of view, it has to be placed into contract that um, the players should not pose anything that will be uncompromising to, to the brand, to their teammates and to their sponsors. So let's play that forward a little bit. Let's say I am a sporting organisation. Those governance and education pieces are in place, but one of the players that is contracted to my organisation posts something that marginalises others, that isn't in line with the views of the organisation, it isn't inclusive, it might be abusive, whatever it might be. Is social listening going to help the organisation get in front of that post or is it more about being able to track the sentiment and trying to manage that? No, great point. What you can do is actually go through and monitor, set up individual channels on a listening tool that can go through and monitor specifically when somebody does post something. And you can raise that maybe as, as an alert. So you can be across that. Maybe quite extreme, but it is possible to go through. So you just cross all your players and their social activity and what they're monitoring. But listening, and this is coming back to the listening and the monitoring, social monitoring and social listening, you know, what what is a more mature approach would be the social listening. Monitoring, you can go through and just watch and take that information in. Whilst listening, you can go through and better track that, that sentiment and that message to your player. And then it becomes more of a crisis communication depending on what that post is. So how you go through and, and react to that. So, yeah, being able to, to monitor it and look at your players is one thing, but once it's out there and it, it does have you know negative mood or, or sentiment or, or connotations to it, how would you then work with your organisation to go through and, and mitigate that risk? And that's where listening can be, can be quite valuable to get on the front foot and help close down, not so much the, the post because it will be out there, but to, to come up with the communication of how the organisation has reacted to, to the situation. Ben, great chat. Super interesting considering rights holders and brands all over the world are really still trying to figure out what they can actually do with all of the amazing data, not just the social data, but all of the amazing data that they can now access. If people want to get in contact with you, connect and keep the chat going, or maybe learn more about TalkWalker and how TalkWalker can help them, what can they do? Where can they go? First thing, you'd probably just reach out to me at my TalkWalker address. It's b.oster.ext at talkwalker.com. Put that email in the show notes. Or just reach out to me on LinkedIn, Benjamin Foster and TalkWalker. <laughs> You'll be able to, to see me there. But yeah, more than happy to keep that conversation going. Benjamin Foster, TalkWalker Oceana Enterprise Partner. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your views, advice, and expertise on social media and social listening for sponsorship. Not a problem. Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much, Dan. Totally love the approach of the three areas of social listening that can be done. Protect, measure, and promote. All key focuses in sponsorship. And it still makes my head spin that the, the sheer volume of opportunity in the data that social listening can provide. And those of you who have a keen creative mind can clearly see lots of opportunities to be leaders in the space of using and aligning social listening and the data with sponsorships for maximum success. You can connect with Ben on LinkedIn. Just search for Benjamin Foster. That's F O S. T-E-R. Email him on b.foster.ext 
at talkwalker.com or visit talkwalker.com to find out more about the platform, including some really, really good case studies. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And of course, if you want to connect with Jordan Rutner, Research Marketing Manager at Core Software, you can catch him on jordan.rutner at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. That's Jordan, J-O-R-D-A-N, Rutner, R-U-T-N-E-R. That's a wrap for episode 99. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Insight Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, eBooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.